The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, everybody. It's episode 23 of the Cinematography Podcast. You're Ben Rock. And you are Ilya Friedman. Last time I checked. Hey, all right. It's uh, episode 23. We made it this far. We've made it this far. It's uh, 23 means that there's like something like four days worth of content that people could listen to. That's just interviews with some awesome cinematographers. So. And we've been getting some really good feedback. I have bumped into a couple of people lately. And actually, we ended up uh, doing some work for someone who uh, is from Canada who uh, listens to the podcast. So, uh, Oh, really? Yeah, it's it's amazing. So, uh, hey, the podcast. I didn't know that. It, that's, it, that's news to me. That's it's great. like the, the third time someone who's listened to the podcast has actually called us up and said, hey, listen to the podcast. And Hot Rod Cameras, we'd like to actually buy some gear from you or have you do some work for us, which is amazing. So I, I that's uh, I'm 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 really thrilled that uh, that this podcast actually did what it sort of was intended to is like to be a promotional vehicle for Hot Rod Cameras. It it it, it, it did. It's now it's done it three times over. So. Sweet. So it's paid for itself. <laughs> But really, this is fun. Really, you know, what this ultimately comes down to is you and I having fun. We talk about movies. We talk about tech. We talk about we talk to people. Yeah. We, we, you know, we, we have a lot of fun stuff and we have a great person on the show today. Yeah. Uh, today, uh, our, our guest is Jaron Prezant, who, uh, for those of you who don't know him off the top of your head, uh, he is the second unit DP on pretty much every Ryan Johnson film. So he works with Steve Yedlin a lot. He and Steve Yedlin and Ryan Johnson went to college together. Uh, and most recently, he was the uh, the cinematographer on Rampage, the awesome movie with uh, The Rock and lots of CGI monsters. Uh, well, you know, uh, I, I was a big fan of the video game. I know it's based on a, a based on a video game, loosely based on a, on a yeah, video yeah. game. But uh, you saw it in the theater, right? I saw it in the theater. And uh, this also comes back to why it's been so long since our last episode. If, if you heard and not not the one with Fade on Papa Michael, but the previous episode with Johnny Durango, uh, I uh, we were talking about how I was about to become a dad. Well, you know, surprise that all happened. I was actually editing Johnny Durango go like in the hospital as Alicia was getting as Alicia was in labor basically she was in labor for a couple of days so uh so I, I was sitting there with my laptop editing Johnny Durango and getting that out the door um so uh Rampage was actually the last movie that uh that I saw in the theater before uh the boy popped out his name is Madden Mad, Madden Wolf Rock uh you can call him Mad Wolf wow Mad Wolf you, Rock you, you did that on purpose I mean, yeah, there's yeah, a, there, the, the reasons for the name are, are many, but I do. It is a fringe benefit that we get to call him Mad Wolf. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, uh, you know, that's that's not nearly as bad a curse as Ilya is. So that's, you know, they're, they're, he's going to be able to order a pizza. I don't think it's a curse at all. So <laughs> and I don't think Ilya is a curse either. But uh, wow. um, <laughs> hey, uh, Ben, since, since now becoming a, a parent, has it changed your lifestyle? Are you still getting out to the movies? Are you still doing any of the uh, uh, I, I've seen exactly. Exactly one movie since he was born in the theater. I've seen plenty on uh, Netflix and Amazon Prime and whatnot, uh, but only one in the theater, and that was at a Mommy and Me screening, which are these screenings they do at 11 a.m. on Monday mornings. 
that they let kids with crying babies into. And it was like, <laughs> were there a lot of crying babies in that theater? Eh, there were probably under 20 people in the theater, but yeah, I mean, you have that, that instinct when you hear a crying baby of like, get that crying baby out of here. Oh wait, that's the whole point of the screening. <laughs> but like they keep the volume down a little bit. They keep the lights up a little bit. And uh, we went there and saw Deadpool too. Totally appropriate to bring a, uh, a small baby too. who. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, the first movie that he, he actually watched, uh, what, uh, sitting on a couch with me was Fargo. So. Oh, perfect. Yeah. 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 So, uh, at least you're getting them started with the classics with the yeah, Coen yeah. brothers and Coen brothers. And yeah, we, uh, he also did watch a uh, reanimator, the Stuart Gordon film. <laughs> of course he did. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, I gotta, yeah. Anyway. Um, but yeah, so we did, that's the last time that I was in a movie theater. And, uh, of course like this, uh, you know, all these amazing horror movies that everyone keeps saying I must see are out. And I, uh, I, I'm just going to have to wait for them all to uh, come on uh, onto Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever. And then in addition to that, um, uh, I, I, I'm kind of loath to tell you, but I've been cheating on our podcast with another oh, podcast. You dirty rat. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I co-wrote and uh, directed and am currently in post on a, uh, a, a fiction horror podcast that is done in the style of like a serial or an S-Town or an In the Dark, like a first person investigative podcast. Uh, that gets uh, extraordinarily Lovecraftian by the end. Okay, well, it's fiction. I, I don't feel so bad now. That's like, yeah, you know, no, it's like fully cast. We recorded forty-five pages a day some days. Yeah, if you if you told me you were off like doing another cinematography podcast of some sort, then then, yeah, then that, we'd have we'd have that'd some be words. weird. I mean, unless I was teaching the ASC how to use oh like yeah, yeah. adequate <laughs> microphones and recording technology. Hey, uh, let's uh, let's dive right into the interview, and we got uh, we got some other great stuff on the show today. All right, cool. So here, uh, without further ado, is Jaron Prezant. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right. So I'm here at Hot Rod Cameras with Jaron Prezant. Thank you very much for coming out. Thanks for having me. So I always start with what has kind of become my stock question. And that is, uh, I believe that uh, I believe that when cinematographers read a script, they look at it and they interpret it either in terms of how it's going to be lit, like what it's going to look like, or what the composition is, how it's going to be framed. And some some people we've talked to have said, I reject the, that premise, which is fair, mm-hmm. too. I kind of just use it to, to kick it off and say, like, what ha- what goes through your head when you're reading a script? What's the first thing you see? What's your first interpretation? I, I would probably say that I, I don't separate those two things. Like when I'm first reading the script, I just see images in my head. And the images have they're both about light and about composition. It's about camera movement. It's about all of that. Yeah. So um it's not like when I'm first reading a script, I see the idea of light and don't have any sense of images that go along with the light. Mm-hmm. I see it all as one. But then as I keep going through the script again and again, each of those things kind of, I delve deeper and deeper into each of the things. The, the, the lighting becomes more ingrained in what the characters are going through and in what, what would be the most effective for the story. And the same thing with the with the composition and what the camera movement can do and how can we, how can we best say what's, what's happening with these characters with a camera. So, so they inform each because I, I always think about compositional based. I, I mean, like I, I don't know. I've never interviewed any of like Juan Car Wise DPs, but but you look at those There's movies no. and it's like it's like very specific composition. Like the composition is outrageously specific, and that might come from Juan Car Wise in that case. Yeah, I mean, sure. but also Juan Car Wise has that the whole thing about the space and how the space informs the the images and like mm-hmm. you know the the like I remember reading you know about him and Christopher Doyle who, and they would 
they would go to spaces and like think about they wouldn't think about how they were going to cover a scene until they got to the space and then you see yeah. the space and the space informs the images and how they're how they're going to photograph the whole movie both in terms of light and in terms of camera um it's a really that's really organic process you know yeah i guess that makes um, sense too so but his stuff i mean it like you know beautiful when, process yeah <laughs> I mean, I mean, like when you look at anyone's yeah. films where like every frame looks like you would hang it on your wall, like yeah. to me, yeah. I, I kind of go, that's a composition person. And even though he kind of corrected me, we had early in the podcast, we had a guy named Fraser Bradshaw mm-hmm. on and Fraser was one of the people who put this idea in my head. And he mm-hmm. even said like, if I did, I think you're misunderstanding me, but I, mm-hmm. I still kind of, I have a theory that a lot of people who come out of the camera department are actually very excited about lighting. And a lot of people who come up through the lighting department think in terms of composition because yeah. it's not the thing they're always thinking because it's new and exciting and different. It's interesting. I, I mean, I came up through camera initially and then, but then became fascinated with light and ended up being, becoming gaffer. And then it was, it was from being a gaffer that I actually kind of transitioned into a DP. So you did both, but actually. Did both, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. cool. So, yeah, that further mm. bolsters my theory. Oh, there we go. Both <laughs> and both. There we go. <laughs> uh, I'm going to keep working on this. So, uh, so when you see you came up through the camera, so mm-hmm. what, what was your starting point? Where did you come so from? In uh, in high school, I wanted to be. Well, going way back, I wanted to be a, a fine art still photographer, mm-hmm. and I'm kind of a failed still photographer because I realized that. Well, I, I, I saw still photography and I said, it'd be a very lonely career, you know, because mm-hmm. you're just by yourself. Right. Yeah. And, and I love and, collaboration. And, but you wouldn't right? be. I mean, fine art still photographers have staffs. Of the thing that I that I love with uh, with still photography is not like studio still photography. I like landscapes and I like, oh, okay. like found photography and like that that kind of that kind of, you know, Henry Cartier Bresson style you know, yeah. documentary photography. Type oh, neat. And I always wanted to do that. But it was it, I saw saw my life as like you know, traveling and, but, you know, really slightly lonely in terms of the work. Like a hobo with a camera on hobo your back. with a camera <laughs> at 12. This is, this is how I saw myself. But I, uh, I loved movies and I, 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 I knew I wanted to do, do something that was collaborative. And so I, I tried to get on movie sets and, and when I got on one and I saw a cinematographer, I was like, that's, that's exactly what I should do. What you was know? the movie set? It was Killing Zoe. Nice. Um, so, and I befriended Tom Richmond, and I, who was the DP on the movie, and I ended up working up through his camera department. And oh wow! Spread out and worked with other other DPs. And now, at that point, had you gone to film school? Had you? I was in high school. You were in high school yeah. when Killing Zoe came yeah. out. Yeah. So, um, and then, uh, but so I worked up through the camera department, and then also simultaneously went to went to film school because Tom Tom had a great story about he went to Harvard in the '60s and. At, at some point in, you know, in with war protests and whatnot, he like, he like said, I'm leaving the university. And, and then a year later, he was like, what the hell have I done? What well, you don't do that. And so he was, he was such, so into education. So the whole time we were working, he was like, no, but you're going to, you, you're going to go to college. You should go to college. You should go to college. And so I went to, went to USC while, while ACing and, and then coming out of college, it's like you were saying, you know, I, I, I was all in the camera department and started getting fascinated with lighting. And so I started working as an electrician too. And, and interesting. And I came up as a gaffer. So you went to USC. Mm-hmm. Were you undergrad or grad over there? Undergrad. Okay. So, yeah. 
that that school when I first moved to LA my wife had a job in the student industry relations office mm-hmm. for she worked for Larry Hour back there and I just mm-hmm. remember because I went to a, a tiny film program in Florida and mm-hmm. they had like underwater housings for their lights at USC and it was like you have wow, what I did you did I didn't get, wow <laughs> you totally you had like such, such like we'd been shooting on CP16s with like redhead kits and you guys had like the real stuff I feel like I mean well the real stuff we, I think there was like one SR in the school mm-hmm. When I was there, and like, and there were a lot of Arieses. Mm-hmm. I love that camera, though. I love that. It's a cool <laughs> camera. Yeah. yeah. So was it SR two or SR three? Oh no, it was there was an SR. Oh, just the SR, yeah. the first SR. Yeah. Oh, okay. I think they. I think maybe when I was leaving, they were like Claremont was giving them an SR two. Oh wow. I can't remember, but yeah, it was. It was. It was they didn't have a ton of. I mean, they they had a ton of stuff by all film school standards. They had a ton of stuff, but it was like I didn't ever see underwater housing that would be cool <laughs> now were, were you in a, are you from la uh from missouri originally so and then, but i grew up in la okay so, time, so so you so you were already out here and usc wasn't a mysterious place across the country no, i actually wanted to go to nyu but usc gave me more money oh and the, you know film school is expensive it is not cheap <laughs> <laughs> so so while you're in film school you're working in the camera department working in the camera department and i, and I also had a friend who um he wanted to be a music video director and I wanted to be a DP and he, uh, he also started a side business doing like, uh, little, uh, punk records, right. Just as like punk seven inches and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And so he would do some music videos that I would shoot for him. And so I kind of, I was, I was acing on set on real jobs and then kind of shooting these small, tiny little music videos with him and going to USC. And going to USC. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot to yeah. do at one time. Yeah, you know, <laughs> stuff on weekends and then shifting around. But I think that was part of that. That was part of the learning experience is because you wanted to, you want to see how it's done on a real set and then go experiment with it, right? So yeah. I mean, and and I never saw. You know, I remember being in film school and people people would be super worked up about, oh my gosh, I've got a film due, and it's like, you know, how am I going to get this done? And I never had any of that anxiety about making making films. It was it was just such an exciting process to me that it didn't feel daunting, hmm. you know? Um, now, now things, you know, the bigger they get, <laughs> the more they, you know, there's a lot more work involved, but it's like, but, but I'm never, I'm never like, it's, 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 it's more of an excitement, not like, a. Um, I, I remember some of the, some of the students were just like frozen in fear of the thing and never felt that way to me. Well, it always seems weird to me when someone's treating an assignment at a film program like I have to go write an essay yeah, on right? Chaucer. Yeah, exactly. Know? It's like, it's like it's you're like making they a just, movie. They just told you to go make a movie. What, like, yeah, it's isn't, like vacation. Isn't that, well, isn't that why you're here? <laughs> like, <laughs> Don't tell anybody I said that. It's not like vacation. It's work. It's, it's work. It's very hard work, work very and, hard. and should be paid and yeah. uh, compensated very highly. Um, no, that so that's cool. So yeah. any did you work with any punk bands at the time that that we would have heard of? Yeah, we we did uh, No Effects and Guttermouth. Oh wow, um, there were a bunch of them, and I like I'm forgetting all the names. I think we did Lagwagon. Are any of those videos uh, like online? Can we find them all? I'm sure there's it's the internet. You can find anything, right? It's surprising so, sometimes when you can't. I'm like, yeah, uh, yeah. I, it's it's also funny because you're like, I I mean, I used to. I remember there was there was a time where I remembered every one of them, right? And now I'm yeah. like. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> there are so many little little things. Well, do you ever look fun. back back at that stuff? Uh, you know, kind of through the lens of of what you know now and how you would do it now. I do. I, it's funny. Like uh, I look back sometimes and and say, what the hell kind of choices was I making? Because I mean, you know, each at each point you learn, right? Yeah. Um, 
and and I don't I don't usually go back that far, but I do go back like you know to earlier and and once I actually was really starting to shoot, and even then, I mean, heck, even going back just a few years, I feel, I always feel like that you're always learning and you're always pressing into new areas, right? Because that's the yeah. whole point. I mean, you should always be learning. Every job is a new learning experience, and so. Um, but when I go back all the way to there, there's some things where I'm like, wow, I hadn't figured out like the, uh, some, uh, something on the lighting front. I hadn't quite figured that out. You know, I hadn't quite figured out how far, how backy I could push the key. I hadn't figured out, you know, how deep I could go with fill or not. You know, I, like the, the nuances of it weren't finalized. And I assume back then you're shooting most of the stuff on film, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was all 16, some super eight stuff and like, but but mostly 16 we shot some 35 from time to time but well and it wasn't until later that i mean i remember that time when you're like oh and we get to shoot 35 i know it was so great (laughs) um it was really fun (laughs) it was great those were good days (laughs) yeah well this i mean it still happens like when people tell me that they're shooting something on 35 their Mm -hmm. eyes light up they're always excited that they're doing something on 35 and it's not that anyone's down like work is work mm-hmm. but every dp i know it's like if they're shooting on the alexa or whatever it's like yeah it's cool we got an alexa but it's like there's a special that the director really really pushed for 35 and it's like i mean i think like uh, especially now there's like a nostalgia to the thing right yeah so i mean i i love film and I, i'm like so like deeply committed to the the look of photochemically printed film i really really love that and i'm all about emulating that digitally you know, when, when I shoot digitally, it's all about emulating a photochemical print finish, you know, and then working within that, that complexity. But there is something really nostalgic to like the, the, the purr of the camera and the, you know, yeah, yeah. the whole thing. I mean, I mean a lot of times for me, when I hear it, I just hear my bank account emptying, <laughs> but <laughs> that's with IMAX, <laughs> but IMAX is beautiful. Oh, you of know, course. Photochemically printed IMAX. And I mean like, you know, in today where you can like call up any of these, any number of looks on resolve or any, you know, colorista, whatever you're using, there's still something cool about like, no, we're going to cross process this and we're going to get this look that you can only get this one crazy chemical way or something. Well, I don't know. Like that, I take I would take take some issue with saying that you can only get it that way. I think that you can get any look uh, digitally, provided that you can properly characterize it. Right, that's like one of the big big shortcomings of of digital pipelines right now is but that we don't tend to be specific enough in how we characterize stuff, and then and and you know if you if if you aren't taking the time to properly characterize stuff and then you don't get the result you want and you can't throw away the 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 process and say it's the process's fault right what do you mean by characterize i mean so 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 let's take film for example you 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 need to characterize the uh the density characteristics of it right so that mm-hmm. you have to characterize the t- the the color response right you have to characterize the the film the the grain you have to characterize the movement, like the 2D movement of gate weave and whatnot. And you have to characterize some of the idiosyncratic responses like halation, right? Yeah. Um, if you don't get all of those things, but then you say, okay, well, it does, you know, digital doesn't have the feel. Have you, you know, you're not really making an accurate comparison, right? Yeah. So yeah. that's all I'm saying is like, is like when we say, you know, and, and, and it like we, you brought up cross process, that's actually something I'd really want to characterize, you know, but and I've got to find the right project where that that's the thing that we're that we're wanting to, to do. And there's an argument for just doing that process. Right. Yeah. But we're we're in a time as well where you have to you have to know all of the potential pitfalls that come with doing any process. Right. So 
when you're when you're shooting something digitally, do you ever think about if like, I were doing this on film, here's what I would want it to look like? How to what what's a process I can come up with to emulate that look or that feel? Well, I mean, so when I shoot digitally, I, I set the entire pipeline up uh, for print emulation, and then when I'm shooting, it's actually it's exactly like shooting film. I light with the light meter. I don't the monitors are just reference. It's not it's not I'm it's 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 like a really great video tap. Yeah, on a on a on a motion picture camera on a, on a film camera. Does it know. does it uh, affect you though? Now that like everybody on the crew can see sort of the ultimate product that you're creating on the day, and so everyone can chime in and have an opinion about it, as opposed to a video tap, which would look grainy and weird. You know, I think I, I, there's there's two sides of that. One is a one is a political question of like, have you set up the relationships up front with everybody who's 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 involved? Yeah. To understand how you're taking the image through the entire image image chain right mm-hmm. and do they have you have you created the correct prestige faith relationships with all the parties that are that 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 have a say which sometimes you don't even have time to do on a job well yeah it depends on the job i mean yeah. to me that's like that's a huge part of the job is actually creating those relationships and it's actually like i said I, I i got into this business for a large part because of the collaboration so those relationships are things that i actually kind of cherish right yeah, yeah. and i and i pay a lot of attention to those things um so to me, that's like one of the major things that you need to do in prepping a job, however short or long they are, if that makes any sense. Um, For sure. But um, but yeah, and then, then but the, the flip side to that is like there's, a, you know, especially if you get into like, you know, commercial world, you know, there's a there's a big still photo- the still photography commercial world has you know their agencies have become very accustomed to as soon as the photographer has snapped a photo it's gone through entire pro- the entire process and there's an image they can look at that is the end final image yeah right and they're and and the commercial agencies are looking for an analogous motion picture version right so they're they're, they're looking for the the image that they see on a monitor to be the final thing which to me that's actually not what we're trying to do on set what we're trying to do on set is fine is get the basis of an image that's going to be finished with a, a proper post chain, right? Yeah. So it's getting people adjust, you know, understanding what the the post chain is going to do. But do you build like a do you build like lookup tables or something that emulate as close to what the end product? Yeah, is? Yeah, I have a I, I so for every job that I do, I have a single show lot that that covers that job. So yeah. Yeah, because I mean, I don't, I don't mean anything against uh, commercial agencies because they've employed me from time to time, and they're very nice people, and some of them are my good friends. But sometimes they don't understand that whole that it's yeah. not their job to understand yeah. that whole process. Yeah, yeah. And well, the, and, and, and you and don't have time, and to, that's it. It's your it's, it's it's your job to try to kind of uh, kind of walk them into it, right? Yeah. Um, as best you can, you know, given the time you've got. Exactly. Like sometimes, sometimes on a commercial, short. you yeah. you get the call on sure. Wednesday and you're shooting by Friday for sure. For sure, <laughs> especially nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and and you know, if I mean, if you know them, then you can obviously yeah. talk about whatever. And yeah. I've worked with some agency people who are extremely savvy about that stuff. Yeah, and I've yeah, worked yeah. with some who are yeah. like, "Is this? Are these numbers going to be on the screen?" And it's like, "No, that's, that's your monitor." <laughs> that's great. That's great. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> totally joking. The, the correct answer is always yes. Yes, the numbers. No, you no, can't, no, you no. can't get them out. They're, it's it's just a glitch, and we got the wrong camera. And uh, it's all good. Nike, so. Nike will forgive you. So, at what point does mm-hmm. Steve Yedlin come into your life? Uh, Steve and I met in college. Steve, you know, I met Steve in college. I met Ryan in college. Uh, Steve and I. So, so we met in college. We really started hanging out after college because we were both the two cinema, two guys who really, really mm-hmm. were into cinematography and. 
And by the way, the Ryan that you just brought up, that's... That's Ryan Johnson. Yes. Yeah. Um, Maybe you've heard of him. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, as, as we as we got out of college, as I started getting jobs, Steve Steve was working as, an, as a gaffer at mm-hmm. the time. And I, I started hiring him as a gaffer. He started hiring me as a gaffer. Um, so we started gaffing for each other. And that's basically how we came up. I was doing a lot of commercials and he was starting into the feature world. And so we gaffed for one another. And as, oh, that's cool. as we kept working, um, we, uh, you know, I shifted from gaffing to doing second unit. And then, uh, you know, we kept, kept growing. So, yeah, because the, the first, I think the first credit that you have with him, uh, with you doing second unit is May. Am yes. I correct? Yeah. Uh, and May is one of those movies that somebody gave me on VHS, like a, mm-hmm. you know, a store bought copy of mm-hmm. it and was like, watch it. And I was like, okay. And I tried watching it like, ha- I didn't quite, I wasn't paying full attention to it. And I, and I, and I, I went back and, and they were like, no, you have to watch it completely over and you cannot stop watching until the end. <laughs> Luckily it's before, before, uh, smartphones. And like mm-hmm. that movie has one of the most uh, amazing endings of any movie I've ever seen. Yeah, like, it's it, fantastic. It's so brilliant. It's fantastic. The whole construction of it. But Lucky's a genius. When you're, wor- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lucky McKee, uh, yeah. who's who's he's done a lot of he's done a lot of like cool little like psychological thriller horror kind of things. He's amazing. What does a second unit like? Wh- uh, how how did a movie like that end up having a second unit at all? Well, the, <laughs> the second unit on that was literally like w- we we don't have enough time to shoot. Yeah, because well, I gaffed that movie too. Okay, so we don't have enough time to shoot everything. So how can we get everything done? So you know we're in we're in one room basically shooting this you know set, this set that has that everything's lit and it's kind of done. Now mm-hmm. remember, Steve was also a gaffer, so at that point I would be like, we would we would say, okay, well I'm going to go in the next room and shoot these little pieces that we that we missed. Mm-hmm while they're shooting in the other room that's the second unit that's it (laughs) you know on that and and second unit like i mean maybe this is this is something you're the first person who's done as much second unit as Mm -hmm. you've done that we've had on the show and i've directed a little bit of second Mm -hmm. unit so i I have a sense of it and when i was when i got the first call about directing second unit i called todd hallowell who had done Mm -hmm. second unit for ron howard on Mm -hmm. a bunch of films and he gave me some insight into it, but the more I've the more I've done, the more I realize second unit can really just mean whatever the individual film wants it to mean. It is, yeah. It's it can be it can be everything from tiny little inserts to yeah. full sequences. Yeah. <laughs> well, like Tony Libertari, who we had on here, mm-hmm. he's a storyboard artist, mm-hmm. and he does all the Fast and Furious movies. Mm-hmm. And Tony, I went to see one of the Fast and Furious movies with with him, and and it was um, when Justin Lin was still directing them, mm-hmm. and I and I was like, so was Justin Lin there when you guys were doing all this stuff? He's like, no, no, second unit, it's all the all the car chases. I'm like, mm-hmm. the car chases in the Fast and the Furious movies are all mm-hmm. second unit, mm-hmm. like that's yeah. the second unit, <laughs> and I, and I think it would surprise people to know that, but also I think sometimes there's a badge of pride that you'll hear like Christopher Nolan doesn't work with the second unit, and I think it's because he's trying to keep his vision pure. So from your point of view, when you're doing second unit, are if I was to say, hypothetically, as a director, I don't want a second unit because I want it all to be my vision, but mm-hmm. I need a second unit because I've got to cram 50 pounds of shit into a 10-pound bag here, mm-hmm. schedule-wise, if I bring you on, what am I going to get from you and or you know a, a second unit director like the ones you've worked with? Well, I mean, like I think I, I, from, from the director's standpoint? Well, I guess my question is, it, it, it's such a loaded question. Fuck it. I'm just going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sort of ask, ask from your point of view. Mm-hmm. So you're there to execute the first unit director's idea of mm-hmm. whatever it is you're there to do. Correct. Yeah, for sure. 
So, yeah. so how does your second unit, when you've done it, how does that interact with the first unit? It really depends on the movie and how it's set up. Cause some movies have a second unit director, some don't. So it, there, there are some movies where what you're trying to do is do as much as you can for the main unit director without the main unit director present or with little, very little interaction with mm-hmm. the main unit. And then there are some where the main unit director has a second unit director and they've had a conversation and then they've let you let the second unit director run with it. And then there's some some movies where the main unit director is the second unit director and that's they just bounce back and forth. You know, so each movie kind of has its own type of setup and it depends on how the director wants it set up as to how what the what the job will entail and how you how you kind of fine tune it to the job. So to me, that's like one of the big things with second unit, with successful second units is you have to be a successful second unit is malleable to the needs of the main unit director and what they, how they want to want to set up the execution of their vision. So, and, and this is a big question. Tell me what's awesome about it. Awesome about second unit. Yeah. The potentially fun things about second unit are, I guess it really depends on I guess it really depends on the job. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, second unit can be amazing and it can be the worst thing in the world. You know, it can be amazing because you shoot gigantic sequences and with lots of toys and lots of, uh, you know, or I shouldn't say toys, with lots of complex equipment that that can yield really amazing images. And second unit can be amazing because it's so, integ- if, you, if you do it correctly, it's so integrative with main unit. So there's a, a sense of of challenge that I think is there of like really capturing what what the style of the film is because you have to really understand what you're what you're really aiming for. Yeah. And 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 that's also that's also a challenge that's a huge challenge because sometimes the thing that 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 you would be aiming for is not your your aesthetic, you know? Um, I don't really do that those those jobs anymore, but like yeah. the, you, you know in terms of the ones with with other DPs who the aesthetic doesn't align with, but that's but it doesn't matter if if you if a second if you're doing a second unit job and your aesthetic isn't the same as the main units main unit DPs aesthetic it doesn't matter you're still there to execute their aesthetic not yours so it's a very different job than than uh, shooting a main unit now when I do when I when it, when I do st- second unit with Steve and Ryan that's a really really easy process because steve and i came up together our aesthetics are almost identical and you, you all know? went to college together so well you, you, yeah i mean but like more importantly like what yeah what our influences are what we love what we don't like those are all totally aligned right yeah. and so then the the conversations are more about what are we trying to do on this film what what's our what's our philosophical approach to the film but, you know, in terms of camera work, in terms of lighting, where are we trying to do? What are we trying to do conceptually? And then that's that's the end of the discussion. Right. Yeah. Because then from that, all of the details are solved out of that one, the one concept, the one approach. So, so we don't have to get into like for that scene, we need a 10K out uh, coming through those windows and we need this and that. It's not about that. It's like we know what the style is and then our aesthetics are lined up. And with Ryan Johnson, is there a second unit director that you're working with or? No, it's just Ryan. Ryan directs everything on his movies. So he comes over to second unit and kind of. Yeah, it varies on, on each film. It's been a little different. So. Even um, on The Last Jedi? 
yeah, every every film I set up a custom like a custom way for that film that we can have we can try and make it as easy as possible for Ryan to integrate into mm-hmm. and and have have feedback for the second unit, right? And so with each film with the, with the resources at hand and the time at hand, the 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 solution to that has been different. But the idea is if he can come physically, he's there. If that scheduling doesn't work out, then we have some way for him to review live. If he can't review live, then we have some way for him to, for the, the shots to be reviewed just either while we wait or at a, at a later date where then, and if it's some later date, then there's the potential to go back if we need to. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, when when I had that conversation that I had with Todd Hallowell, mm-hmm. uh, he said that on Apollo 13, uh, he'd made up T-shirts for the second unit that said if it was easy, first unit would have done it. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, there's some stuff like that. <laughs> so yeah, th- th- so that's kind of my question is, and when you've done second unit, do you find that you end up like doing the non-dialogue scene, like the big special effects thing or the really meticulous slow car rig or I mean, something the, the standard thing for second units is just that like i mean on on rampage we had some really massive stunt sequences where we could do everything leading up to the one some one stunt right but that one stunt was going to take all day to shoot one shot so that we might prep the whole thing but then we'll leave it for us we left it for a second unit to actually execute the whole that the actual shot because it's going to take too long for a main unit, which has a limited amount of time with with actors and everything, and 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 is a you know it's it's a massive group. It doesn't move quickly. I mean, it doesn't. You can't shift quickly. And then you've got that set against. But you but you do need to actually get a lot of like the actual meat of the movie done, right? Yeah. Dialogue you scenes. That, you know, you, you have set, actors who yeah, have exactly, limited schedules. Exactly. And all that you stuff. set that against. You've got this one shot that's going to be going to take a whole day to shoot and it's that's the thing you you leave for a second unit you know and the same thing holds true with ryan's stuff and with everything you know it, when you've got very complex shots that you're trying to do you can use a second unit to keep to keep those complex shots there's also another thing that's overlooked a lot is that it's that you you know especially with ryan he may leave more mundane shots that are actually sometimes with dialogue and everything that that he knows he can come over and he could because he's directing everything he knows he can come do them but he leaves those for my for for my unit because it allows main unit to do some very very complex you know master shot that that otherwise you wouldn't have the time to do so you can you're both you're both buying main unit more time for more complexity and you're relieving them of complex shots that would take too too long that's why it's hard to find you know that that trying to trying to find really great second units that, that align well that's that's a tough it's a tough job <laughs> so so uh on brick uh, um, and actually a, i i don't think i've ever told this story on the podcast a friend of mine used to produce promos for disney you might have worked on some of them because uh, his name is chad saley his company was hieroglyphic okay. productions mm-hmm. and uh chad told me one day that uh he was working with this director on the on one of the disney promos and they were at lunch and he was telling him this great idea for this kind of noir set at a high school idea that he had and chad was like dude you just gotta you just gotta quit doing these stupid disney promos and go 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 make that movie mm-hmm. and that movie was brick that director yeah. was was ryan johnson yeah. and chad said why didn't i give myself that advice yeah um 
but I, I think it's interesting. You know, it's like he was already kind of a working director, an up and coming director. But I remember seeing Brick in the theater and just being blown mm-hmm. blown away and seeing the beauty of, of independent film is that movies can come out of nowhere that you've never heard of and, mm-hmm. and surprise you in yeah, such amazing sure. ways. And Brick was definitely one of those. So just kind of take me into the world of, of the production of that movie. Um, yeah, I mean, Brick, I, I, I gaffed Brick. We, there were, I shot second unit, and then another friend of ours, Todd, and someone of us shot some second unit on Brick, too. Mm-hmm. So, um, How many days of a shoot was, was Brick? Um, I think it was 18. That's pretty tight. So, yeah, it was fast. So. And, uh, you know, what, so, I mean, like, what was the, what was the atmosphere like? And I mean, like you guys were all film school buddies Mm -hmm. and was that the first feature that you'd all gotten to make together? So we, uh, we'd done May, Mm -hmm. um, not with Ryan, but with Lucky. Lucky went to college with us too. Oh, okay. So, um, so May was probably the first movie that we all as, as college, college friends got to make together. And then Brick was, you know, Brick was another and Todd was at college with us as well. I mean, it, it was, I remember Brick was kind of an amazing job. It was, it was one of those, like, everybody's getting paid the same thing mm-hmm. and everybody's like, you're just in it deep in, in the trenches together. Um, it was, it was an amazing experience. And I mean, it was it, like, you know, Ryan's a, a, an unbelievable filmmaker and, and, you know, his scripts, I read his scripts and I'm, I just, I of course want to work on them, but I just want to see them. Like you read yeah. them on the page and you're just like, I cannot wait to sit in a theater and watch this because they're so visual and they're, they're, they're such amazing stories, you know? So you, and you've worked on, like you worked on Brothers Bloom and you worked mm-hmm. on all, all of those yeah. all the way up to and including yeah. Last Jedi. Yeah. So last, I mean, I, I have to ask the obligatory Last Jedi, holy mm-hmm. crap, like that's, that to me is the brass ring of especially any like film school person from, you know, roughly our two generations. Yeah. Like working on a star Wars movie. That's, that's, that's pretty heavy hardware right there. It was, yeah. It was complete. I mean, it was totally surreal. I mean, <laughs> the original star Wars is why it's why I got in, excited about film. You yeah. Know? And I can remember, I can remember them coming out and I can <laughs> remember standing in line. And I can, you know, they're, they're formative for me. And the funny thing about it was like, I think everybody involved, they were formative for, Oh yeah. you know, and it was, it was, you know, it's, it's, it's not always the case that, that, that people are as excited about the thing and the history, the, the heritage of the thing you're doing. But when that's there and it's so pervasive across everyone, it was, it's something really, really, really special, you know, and what it means, what it meant to me personally and, and, and to Steve and to Ryan. And it's, it was, um, it was a really, really exciting project and really amazing, amazing experience. So when you're working on something like that and you're, you're kind of looking at this legacy of these films, what are the pains that you're going through to stay true to, and and it's not just the canon story-wise, but just like the way, are you going back and looking at what lenses they used? Are you using any of the original lenses or like, is there, how, how fetishistic are, are, are we staying to making the, uh, the new ones? Cause I feel like the, especially the last two really feel like star Wars movies. Mm-hmm. Like when I was a kid, mm-hmm. unlike the prequels, mm-hmm. um, no offense to the prequels, but yeah, I'm, I'm a bigger fan of them. Of, yeah. of the <laughs> so, um, what level of, uh, of, of accuracy or, or research did you guys go I through? I mean, like, it, like empire was the big, you know, driving force visually that we were trying, you know, trying to play into, but we also aren't making, 
we aren't we aren't making that movie we're making yeah. a, a new movie that 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 stylistically it takes that as a reference but where we really focused on that was in terms of the style of lights and the style of yeah. lighting um the style of lights more so than the style of lighting well i guess that's um, what, I, what i'm getting at is like then, how much do you make you don't want it to be a museum piece you don't want it to be a dead thing you want it to be a living no new, i mean new film. And, and it really like i mean it's ryan if you look at it it is the camera work is ryan style ryan has a very distinct you know ryan and steve they have a very distinct camera style that that's mm-hmm. a very very strong um you know distinct camera moves that 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 with strong composition and that's that's in there that it, it, it's definitely has that thumbprint so it doesn't just repeat what was what was there before it takes that as a style and in a, in a world that we're going to try to we're going to to work within but we're doing something totally new with it and how um, do you how do you typify that style like how would you break down the characteristics that you guys maybe had talked about i mean it was a lot of like a lot of putting a lot of lights in the shot it was a lot of pill lights, the style of style of the practicals, mm-hmm. um, you know, this, the, the, the feeling of the camera inside the cockpits, you know, you know, and feeling really present with with the pilots. All of that was worked into it, you know, but, uh, you know, but then on top of that, you layer on top of that, you know, Steve and I had a conversation about how, you know, one of the, the, the real driving force was to be really cinematic with the lighting, pushing keys really very deep you know, fairly far upstage and really trying to drive real cinematic image imagery, now, when real you're deep like, contrast, like real, driving dr- you know, when you're saying, uh, putting the keys, uh, when you're putting them deep, putting them further upstage. Yep. So what, what exactly do you mean by that? So, you know, it, it's like stage direction where it's, you know, back in Shakespeare, you got like, you know, the stage is tilted yeah. and the people are flat. And so, um, upstage is further away and downstage is closer, closer mm-hmm. to camera. So moving the, moving your key light, deeper into the into the sets you know so that things so it's more backlight and it's more um but not just backlight like a back edge but it's backlight as in the your entire key is shifted back so that then then you're wrapping the key in you know down downstage mm-hmm. and then you can let things fall off into like really strong contrast but very soft so that was a, it was a kind of a driving principle in terms of how we were setting things up you know, a lot of like with with Steve and Ryan, I mean, the main the like they've developed like the core of what we're trying to stylistically create. And then Steve and I talk about conceptual approach to lighting and Ryan comes in with this. is These are the camera. These are the shots that we're going to do. And then we 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 do a back and forth, you know, 90 percent of the time. It's like the shots that Ryan designs are just fantastic. You know, but then through the little back and forth, maybe we get a few different shots that that come up. But um, but Ryan's, a, I mean, his shot design is unbelievable. Well, so, so let's use shot design as, as a pivot to you talking about your own cinematography. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about like what what you mean main units and yeah yeah when yeah. When, you, when you do your own stuff because uh, recently you you just joined the ASC correct mm-hmm. so like ramp is rampage rampage is your first like big budget movie where you are yeah. the DP on yeah so when you're talking about shot design and I and I this is something I think about yeah. a lot what goes into shot design so you can talk about Ryan Johnson you can talk about anybody but mm-hmm. like what what constitutes what kind of shot design do you want someone to hand to you as a DP so that you so that like if a director comes in and says here's exa- here's a schematic for my shot mm-hmm. then it kind of takes a little bit of your creativity away yeah i mean well i i i would i would kind of 
take a little bit of issue with that. I mean, I don't okay. think that the, um, I, I think there's all sorts of directors, right? And there are directors I worked, you know, I worked with Toby Hooper. I did a movie for him. Toolbox and, Murder, right? Uh, no, no, no. Toolbox Murder, Steve shot. I shot oh. Mortuary. Oh, okay. So, um, Toby will come onto a set and you can give him exactly how, or he, he did. Yeah. That was a tragic loss. Um, Seriously. Yeah. Downer moment. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, Way to bring the room down. Yeah, there it is. Well, so, Toby Hooper's uh, like no, Toby's. Fin- I mean, Toby like there's phenomenal. there's the, like, there's several iconic shots like in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that are mm-hmm. just like you look at them even today and and yeah. there's that one shot when the woman's yeah. first walk into the house. Yep. yep. So so uh, when you were working with him, to- like Toby, I mean Toby was a fantastic collaborator. Like he, he's he was phenomenal. He always be, he said he viewed himself as a comedy director. He always wanted to be a comedy director, and so like actually, if you watch his movies back. And you you think about that, it makes total sense. Especially Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. When you watch it, it's almost a parody of the first one. It is so hilarious. But but it's always in 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 all of his films. There's this little comic dark comedy thread. It doesn't. He he never took took himself too seriously, which I thought thought was kind of brilliant. But but in terms of collaborating, like he would come onto a set and and and, uh, you know, he would turn to me and in prep and on, on, on the day and just be like, what do we, what do you want to do? You know, in terms of shot design and mm-hmm. we would talk through it. Right. It wasn't like I would just say, Hey, here's how the camera's going. I would suggest that this would, this is a, a, a type of coverage. And then we would be a little back and forth in, a, in yeah. a discussion. But then there are other directors who have a complete idea of what, of what they want. Yeah. Um, and like, so on rampage, Brad, Brad Payton, he has a really strong sense of camera but he's really also very open to 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 new ideas and stuff. So from that, we can in prep we develop a, a sense of what we want stylistically the camera to do, right? And that was a that was a thing that we did together. But then we're both thinking about this about what the camera should do. We we've, we've set up the concept early yeah. on stylistically. How are we going to approach the camera? How are we going to approach composition? How are we going to approach camera movement? And now we're answering. So, so whenever we're looking at coverage, we're answering it from the same. So, so you, are you saying that you sense. kind of set up a set of rules or a set of yeah, uh, I mean, it, a style guide? A style. I mean, yeah, it's it's kind of like I, I think that's part of prep on any project where you're trying to figure out what's the style, what's the camera style that's the most evocative for what this story is, right? And it may have multiple styles depending on the characters, right? Yeah. So, like, you might have you know, uh, one, one plot line and one, one, one set of characters that has a, a camera that, that is, is loose while the other one is very, is, is very, very composed. Like two characters within the same scene where one person's more yeah. kind of handheld. And yeah. I, I, not with, I mean, maybe not within the same scene or maybe those things crash in, in a scene. I'm saying yeah. like you could, that, that's the type of thing that you can, those con- conceptual approaches are things that you, that you can go through with the director and, and, and kind of pull out from the, from the story. Like I did this movie called, uh, 10 stories tall. Mm-hmm. And in that one we, we, we had, it was a big ensemble cast and some of the, it's all about these characters kind of dealing with death and, and, and changes in life. And so some of the characters were all about centered, centered and balanced compositions and some were completely unbalanced. Yeah. And so that sets up the stage of how you're going to approach the whole thing so that then you start designing all of the shots from that. And that's where you say that's, that's where all the shot design comes from. You start with a concept and then you pull all the shot design from that. 
and then so that then everything's coherent and you can actually tell stories you can you can drive the visual style forward with the characters. Does that make sense? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I sort of feel like my first question is sort of based on 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 starting to glean like how how you do what you're mm-hmm. describing right here. Yeah. So can you, I don't know if you can talk that much about Rampage because it hasn't yeah. come out yet. Can you talk well, about I mean, to you, some extent, <laughs> you can talk about you can talk about style choices. You obviously sure. can't really yeah. reveal plot points. But uh, so if, if you could even go into a little bit more depth about mm-hmm. how you went about creating that style guide, the, the visual style guide for a movie so, like that. Yeah. So, I mean, so, so one of the things like very, very early in prep, Brad, Brad sat down with me and we, and we, he was like, I really want to find what the camera is for the, for the film. Like what is the camera mm-hmm. and how do we define it? And so it, it's, you know, we, we, we had looked at a bunch of references for different, different styles of the movie and and that it, like part of part of the even when I was meeting with him early on and I hadn't even gotten on the job I was showing him different references of how I thought the the movie should 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 feel stylistically with camera and with lighting and that was just setting the stage of hey are we even on the same page right yeah so then we sit and we actually go through it and we and we start really developing like what what would this camera be like what, what how is the camera going to move and and from that we kind of we came we came up with this this you know uh this driving guide that that the camera was this evolving present camera right where it's it it it, it's a camera that's embedded and 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 feels very present Mm -hmm. right so it's a lot of handheld it's a lot of like camera that's moving in response to actors can't you know the camera never moves in 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 rampage it's not a, a premeditated moves where a camera something happens and then the camera just makes a move everything's driven by the actors right mm-hmm. so it's really embedded in the scene but it's always evolving right so shots never it, 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 a shot will always it may be cut in in a way where it's like you know it ends up with just a a, a straight close-up or something but almost every shot we shot started as something went to something else became something else you know character moved and all of a sudden it becomes an, o- an over that that you know it starts as a close-up becomes an over into a medium like yeah um you know the thing the inserts there were never really any we didn't do we did almost no inserts in the movie true inserts they were all like we start on the insert and the insert shifts over and becomes a, a distant two shot across you know the pocket or whatever the and case how many be. cameras like, were you were you sporting on the shoot it's mainly two cameras mm-hmm. so were you operating or did you have operators i, have, I had operators i mm-hmm. operate from time to time but i had operators i think like like when we had rachel on here yeah. like she was talking about how she prefers to operate but when she did black panther like you know yeah i mean like when you've got movies of that scale it's really really difficult to operate i mean here's the here this is a big the big big dilemma if you have one camera I love operating because you're so close to, to everything that's happening. But on a movie of that scale, you need to get through things much faster because because it's a giant ship that doesn't move, it doesn't turn quickly, yeah. right? You, you have to get coverage quickly. So it, and, and, you know, you're dealing with Dwayne Johnson, like, right? Yeah. You, you only get him for a limited amount of time. So you have to get all your coverage quickly. And also, it makes editorial job super super easy because you've got continuity of action in it and everything. So, yeah, yeah. So, but when you've got two cameras, if, if you are operating one, you're always stopping and going, "What? How'd that look?" 
on the other camera. So it, 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 it's a really slow process at that point. The other thing that you lose is the opportunity for collaboration with another another uh, creative mind, right? Like, I I love the collaboration with gaffers, right? Because it's such a such a fun process to to they they come from a different experience with different tools and you you start merging those tools together and you come up with something better than you could have come up with on your own right mm -hmm. that's the whole quest like that's the that's the the great part about collaboration is it's like you can take an idea and bounce the idea back and forth and all of a sudden come to something that is better than either one of you could have come up on your own that same thing can happen with really really good operators where you say this is the shot and the shot goes starts here and it goes ends here and, and it's going to move like this and then in the, while they're setting it up they're like you know it might be really fun if this shifts a little bit more this way because they're only looking at that one slice so in each position there's more and more to think about you know the director is not only thinking about the cinematography he's also thinking about the, the the performances, he's thinking about the costumes, he's thinking about he's thinking about makeup, he's thinking about all these things. Yeah. So in each, you know, in order to be able to think about that many things, you have to have more people, unless or or the scale has to come down. So well, and it seems like your career too, like it's not like you were doing like you didn't go from brick to rampage. You've yeah. you've been working your way up, yeah, slowly. So the the big crew is not a mystery to you. It's it's not a mystery. It's a different different equation but it's all comes down to the same thing right it yeah. all comes down to you're making an image you're telling a story you know um i remember this really you know my my um my brother interned years ago with ron howard on the grinch and he came back home he came home and he was like oh my god it's so amazing so amazing he just told me this thing and i'm like what did he tell you he's like it just comes down to the box he's like you know you got all this stuff but it just comes down to what you're going to put inside that box right yeah and and it's totally right like you know you got you got giant stunts happening and you've got giant cg monsters that will actually <laughs> be there at some point and you've got lighting effects and you got all this stuff happening but it really just comes down to a story you're telling in a box in, in that in that in that frame right yeah um it's all like it, it's it's all the same job it's just scaled right the complexity is but i always wonder when you're making a movie the size of rampage or the last jedi or one of these you know major motion pictures like huge mm -hmm. release kind of movies where there's i don't know mm -hmm. what the budgets are on any of mm -hmm. them but i'm assuming north of a hundred million dollars on mm -hmm. a lot of these kinds of movies uh, as a dp how much of your job is now kind of managerial and overseeing like a giant team i there's there there's always that element on every job right yeah. i mean the the thing that you can't do as quickly is like um you know i i, I did this this movie called hours that was a, a nice small movie that that was single camera and what we could do on that is quickly go like wow you know it'd be like great if you just ran down the hall and like you're already shooting yeah them running down it's like it's it's super fast right that that goes away a little bit but in exchange for that exchange you get things that you could never do with that with on on a movie that small both have pluses and minuses but neither one becomes just managing you're still managing other people and other artists that that's the same on on both scales 
Right. I think I think what I put guess, this in this thought in my head is I read an interview with Bill Pope a long mm-hmm. time ago, an American cinematographer, and it was on one of the Spider-Man movies. Mm-hmm. I think it was the third one, mm-hmm. and he said that they had like at one time they had five units running simultaneously, mm-hmm. and yeah. he was just moving from one stage to another, kind of approving stuff, and he yeah. wasn't like mm-hmm. you know holding the camera. And I don't know. I've never worked on a movie that's like that. I mean, mm-hmm. I have. I you know on on Rampage we had three units going at once, but. You know, I set up the, the, the one of them was an aerial unit and that when I, I gave it gave them some direction in terms of what I wanted in terms of the cinematography. Right. Brad gave yeah. them directions in terms of what he wanted from the shots. And then we have people that that are going to run that. Well, that, I'm guessing an aerial unit. unit on Rampage probably had a, had their work cut out for them like that. Yeah, what, there was, that, there that was wasn't quite like... a bit. I mean, so it's so you go but you go over all that stuff yeah. with. And then we had a second unit in the second unit. I went over with with both the second unit director and the second unit cinematographer. This is what this is what the style is of, of what we're going for. This is what I've talked to Brad about. Brad talks to the second unit director about this is what we're trying to get. And so and then but then we let them go do their their thing. Like yeah. That's, you know, it's not me micromanaging that unit. Because I already have other work to do on the on the main unit, so I've never run a run a run it a show like where I've got multiple a bunch of units that I'm just well, going and over. and that might have but been that, like an exception. That too. might be the specifics of yeah. that show. I mean, and and you know, yeah, I mean, gosh, Bill Pope's on. Yeah, he's done some amazing work like this. But but I'm yeah. sure that the the jobs like completely vary, right? You yeah, know, of course, it's not just all. Um, but I've never been on a show like like this. So, so, uh, tell me a little bit about how did Rampage come about? Because that's, you know, that's, that's a giant movie. Yeah. So, um, I had worked with Brad before, uh, the director on his previous movie, San Andreas. I did shot second unit on San Andreas, um, the whole California unit. And so he already knew me. I also shot the additional photography for San Andreas. And so we had worked together already. But it was like a, a, you know, I, my, I, I'm, I'm deeply indebted to him. He, he went out on a big limb, you know, because I didn't have a, ma- a movie of that scale as a main unit cinematographer. Jedi absolutely helped in swaying <laughs> that. But it was, you know, it, it was my hats off to him. It was like he saw, you know, we met and he saw a value in the relationship and in in the creative you know the creative discussion that we were we were starting yeah and he went to bat to the studio and everything and from that discussion you know i created created a bunch of a bunch of examples and a bunch of um i I created a bunch of content to to show to both him him producers and the studio in terms of what i actually envisioned the movie to be like a sizzle reel or a rip a series. It was a, seri- it, it was a series of, it, they were more like ripomatics. I mean, yeah. it was really, it was a series of, there was one reel that was all of the camera style for the, for the, for the film. Um, so what the camera would feel like, how it would move, all of that. There was the composition and whatnot. And then there was another one that was all about lighting and how I saw the lighting in the film. And then I made a, a little book of stills you know, reference stills from all different movies and, and like a and mood such. board kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and but and with a discussion embedded in it of like what the thing, what the parts of it were that were that were pertinent to different pieces in the film. Oh wow! Um, and then all of that was material that then went forward to all of the parties, you know, in play. It's a crazy um, question, but is that stuff like? Do you have that up on your website or something? Is there like a way that people can see that? Because I feel like. 
anyone can do anyone can do a version of that. Mm-hmm. A, a version of that can be done for any film. Yeah, for, for sure. any for any for project sure. by any pro- yeah. by any person. And it's you know like I always think about uh, Ryan Johnson released the uh, Ripomatic slash animatic that he made for yeah. Looper. Amazing, <laughs> amazing. And uh, and and I think that sometimes like these tools that we use yeah. and. and and you seem like you get into mm-hmm. kind of the, the nitty gritty about like how you're going to do it and thinking about. Yeah, for sure. I mean, because you're, you're trying to get everybody on the same. I mean, this, this, is a, this is an industry built on communication, right? Yeah. And, and so you're trying to get everybody on the same page so that the creative energy is all pinpointed towards the, in the same direction, you know? And, and so any of those tools are, are, are it's hugely useful. The funny thing about those tools is that, and this speaks volumes to like to what what film is is those things take so long to put together Mm -hmm. because what you remember things being what you remember films looking like or shots you know how shots you remember them being designed is not exactly how they they are yeah you know and when you go back you you realize oh wait i always remembered it like x but it's actually y right (laughs) there was this great thing that happened on on uh, Rampage where Brad was like, we were talked about this one uh, apartment being like a little bit hazy, like where you could see the dust in the air, right? And so we talked about it, like what is, how, how, how much atmosphere is that? What, what exactly is it? And Brad was like, oh, it's like this, that shot in The Last Boy Scout where there's like this interior and it's, it's like all hazy, you know, it's, it's got just a light atmosphere and you can see the light coming through the windows and blah, blah, blah. So I look it up and I go online and I'm like, look, get, get this little, get, get the shot. And I'm like, holy crap, <laughs> right? Because it's not light. It's like thick, thick, thick haze, right? Well, it's Tony Scott. And, and I'm like, so I, 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 uh, I, um, uh, I take it in and I'm like, is, is, is this what you're thinking? And he's like, oh, God, no, 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 that's not it. <laughs> but it, the funny part was, is I was like, it's, I had, that had happened to me so many times. Well, the beauty of that like, is you can plagiarize your own imagination and no one's going to ever be sure, upset. For sure. But like, but the, the, the funny thing is, is it's like, you know, when you're, it's one thing when you're just like, oh, it's like the thing. And, and you think you're on the same page, right? Yeah. But it's like when you're actually putting together something that you're going to show to somebody to say, this is what I think it should be. You start to notice all of the nuances that when you just take the one shot out of context, it doesn't, it is actually isn't that thing, right? Yeah. But it speaks volumes to what, what film is because the reason you remember it as that thing is because you're embedded in that moment and you're emotionally attached to the characters and you don't see it for one tiny little shot. You see it in context, right? So you remember it in context. And what you're really describing is the context that you felt, like that emotional thing you felt yeah. that the visuals all gave to you. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that the visuals were exactly that thing. So I actually think it's a huge tool of like, you know, making sure that you're actually talking about the same same thing. You know, it's like I look at paintings and photographs and movies. It's like that that creating that common vernacular. And, you know, when you say it's a thick haze, what does that mean? You know? Brad's a huge fan of that, of like, show me what you're talking about, because then, you, then there's no question, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, so now when, when you're working on a rampage, you have a second unit now that's mm-hmm. working for you. How has doing all the second unit that you've done in, how does that inform the way that you talk to them? Um, I try to respect what it is that I liked about second unit and what it is that I didn't. And so we had Andrew Rollins was our second unit DP and he's great. 
and he's phenomenal. And but I tried to not micromanage it and tried to be, instead give him like the the general direction of what it was we were going for. You know, the idea of this this evolving camera and and try to give him the the, the philosophical yeah. approach to the thing, not just this is where I want the cameras in all these little pieces, you know, and you still end up with that thing of like, you've got previs that's driving shots and, and whatnot, but, but you're trying to, you you hire people for a reason. You want their artistic input. Now, are you, are you involved in the previs process on this or the storyboarding or are you in those conversations? So it, it the, uh, by the time that a DP comes on to a movie like this, there's already a lot of previs that's been started. Yeah. But what I, you know, to me, it's like as soon as you're brought in as uh, as a DP, you know, you're you're brought in for a reason for your aesthetic contribution. Yeah. And, and so, to me, when when I start, the the previs is it, it's a work in progress. And I mean, on any good any good directors that work with previs a lot see it as that. You yeah. know, they see it as a as a as a work in progress where it's a guideline, right? That they don't have, they're not necessarily locked to, but it's a guideline. I mean, I've heard both. Like there was uh, the the director will remain nameless, but I knew somebody who had worked with a director who did extensive, you know, animatics and previs and storyboards on everything. And they would like he, this person described the process of shooting as kind of heartless because you would just go there and just make the previs. You would just right. shoot the previs. I mean, I get, that's not been my experience with the directors that I've worked with. I mean, I think with, it depends with on the heavy previs. Yeah. I mean, I know that that exists. And, and I mean, like Brad actually is a he really loves previs and he like loves like getting into the nitty gritty of it because you can you can tweak so many little things. And that's what we did. We would start. We started having these meetings and we would go through and we would we would fine tune the, the, the previous. We would change like things. We would suggest different different shots yeah. and then things the previous would change, right? And he loves that. But then at on the day, it's also just it's previs, you it's, know, it's and version you can, one of his you idea. can part from it if yeah. you want to. The the one catch to that is that, you know, on a big VFX movie, even when you're shooting it, there's a lot of there are a lot of parts and pieces in the machine that have already started in a direction based on that previs. Yeah. You know, so there's creature design that's already in motion, even though you may change the shot slightly. And when you change the shot slightly, that impacts that creature design. So you have to be aware of all of that, but you're also, you know, when we're shooting the movie, that's when we're make we're shooting the movie. We're, yeah. You know, you can't be driven by previs. You're, you're trying to use it as a tool. So, but I think that's, that also speaks back to the, the idea of communication and relationships where it's like, you have to set those relationships up early so that there is that malleability of the thing, you know? I mean, if I walk into a job and I'm like, it's my way or the highway, the VFX supervisor is probably not going to be very excited about modifying anything. Whereas if, 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 um, if we create the, the environment where we're all in this together and we're actually trying to make something better, then we are like. We're a team. You this, know? this may be a way out question, but you, you talk a lot about kind of creating that environment for collaboration. Mm -hmm. uh, is there a specific technique or there are specific books or are there anything that's influenced you in that direction that you could recommend to people to kind of help them create those relationships on set? Because I feel like that's what everyone wants on set, but you don't always get it. Wow. If there a isn't, book? don't worry about it. Or 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 anything, some, whatever that is that has influenced I mean, you. I mean, uh, um, or do you just have a 
have a knack for being you know good at that no i i mean i i think that there's that's something that you you have to develop those interpersonal skills yeah. you know i think that the thing the thing that's important is not overlooking those interpersonal skills right mm-hmm. they, like i think that a, that it's really easy to think that your only job is to make beautiful images and it's at the end of the day that's that is your job is to make beautiful and appropriate images for a project right that, yeah. that really convey emotion visually emotion and the story they're right for the job they they, they speak volumes to what the, the the movie is in that moment right yeah you know what the characters are going through what you know however whatever the specifics of, of of the shot demand but to get to that place there's a lot of other tools a lot of other pieces and you can't overlook the interpersonal skills that create the the environment where you can then do that thing. But plenty of so, DPs do. I mean, DPs are notorious for being grumpy people. I yeah, I don't know. I I can't do that. That's not mm-hmm. really. It's just not the way I I am. To be clear, so, none of the DPs I work with have ever been grumpy. But <laughs> um, I don't know. It's just not. It's that's not not ever been the way that I've I've worked. I guess you could. So no, it's just um, it's just interesting I, to hear you talk I don't, about it. I don't really have um, a frame of reference for for where to get those skill those skills. You don't from, have sorry. to. I was just I was just, because it's such a such, but I do it, think it's an important part because of it's it. a fundamental part of your process. Yeah. I the only reason I, mean, I asked is like I'm I'm just curious like because there there are plenty of people who are like I'm going to be an auteur blah 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 or whatever and they don't think about that stuff. Yeah, but and you know, some of those people are successful. But you know the one thing I would say is like is one of the things I mean at the core of this is is the prestige faith relationship you know the 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 how much does the person that you're working with respect you and how much do you respect the other person right yeah now you don't have to be a nice guy to earn to garner respect and some people do that get create that prestige faith relationship in a different way yeah you know and some people on the other side of the table not the dps but on the on the director's side may not respect somebody who's 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 just a um you know, a, a, a nice guy. Maybe they want somebody who's going to be an ass, mm-hmm. you know, but they're like a talented ass. I don't know. I mean, I, that's just not my, not how I do what I do. Yeah. But that probably means that there are certain directors that, that I'll gel with really well. And then there are certain directors that, that I might not. And I think you, you, you know, at, at, on some level on when you step back from the entire thing and you look at careers and you look at life, you, you have to find people that you collaborate well with and you have to realize what type of people, what type of artists you like to, you, you collaborate well with and what type you don't. Yeah. And then fine tune where you're looking to, to work. So, no, and, and I sometimes, cause you know, we'll, we all hear stories about the people who are screamers or whatever on set. And I'm thinking like, it doesn't matter how successful they are. Yeah. That's a miserable person for me. Some people, <laughs> some people like that. I don't know. Yeah. That's not been yeah. my, that's not really my, uh, I don't, I just don't want to be that person in life. And that's a different discussion of like, what, what <laughs> energy do you want to put out in the world? You know? Yeah. Um, in Rampage, mm-hmm. you're also dealing with massive amounts of CGI created stuff, mm-hmm. which you're talking about. And obviously it's, I'm sure it's in the previs or storyboards and mm-hmm. you know, all, all the work, all the pre-work that you've done before you get to set. But how do you work on set when somebody is interacting with an imaginary thing? I think, I mean, it varies per you know, per scene and what the thing is mm-hmm. like the one thing to remember is you're, you're working from the end backwards. Right. So, so whereas, and with everything, when everything is real, you build the whole thing in the frame and, and that's, that's 
and now you're looking at it all, right? And you, yeah. you, you work within, you know, the reality of the situation. With CG work, you have to work backwards. So you have to imagine what the end result's gonna be, right? And then yeah. work backwards from that so that you're putting things in the right places. There's gotta be light that works in the right way for the end result, not necessarily what's easiest on set. So you have to have interactive light that, that works on the, on, the, on the characters that you know is going to exist there later. And that's a back and forth re- relationship that doesn't always come from the previs or, or, or storyboards. Well, it's like, like, let's say, and again, I don't know anything about, mm-hmm. I haven't seen the movie, so this is not a plot point, but if there's, say, a sh- we know that there's shots at a building with a giant gorilla, mm-hmm. right? Are you setting up something to create shadows that then are going to, yeah. they're going to fill that in with CGI? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So we, we're creating, we had some, some very large rags that shifted into place for, to, to represent George at times, mm-hmm. you know, George is the, the gorilla. So as things move, you know, you want that interaction, in, interactive light, and that may mean bringing lights in or taking light away. And then some of the times you're accentu- you, you you're doing some some work on set, and then you're accentuating it in downstream in the pipeline. That that's all got to be part of the plan, and it's got to be set up ahead of time. But I mean, there's a there's a part of about cinematography that to me is prep is like the most stressful and the most exciting time on a movie. Because that's the time where you're actually conceiving of everything. Yeah, it can right? be anything. It, it can be anything. And you're, con- you're figuring out what you want it to be. When you get to set, you're, if, if, if you've done your, your work, you're executing a plan. You're, you're, and that plan is going to shift dramatically. And you need to be able to move with it and sh- change with it. But the design of shots and the design of what you're, what you're conceiving of, that's something that happens in prep. And so that same like visualization of an image is the process for CG work that's it but that's the same for CG work as it is for for you know physical photography yeah because that step is the same the next step is different the execution piece is different because you're one you're coming you're building it's, it's like one's additive and one's subtractive right you're like one you're building you're building the set in front of you and the other one you're starting with the end thing and you're subtracting back to what what you have that's real mm-hmm. right um, but the, the the beginning of that is the exact same starting starting spot. Now, when you're doing something that's as heavily CGI, but also like you, they're CGI characters that have emotions and feelings and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And as a DP, you spend a lot of time lighting faces and mm-hmm. and getting mm-hmm. making sure that expressive faces can convey emotion. Do you have any say in like the CGI setup or rigging or the way that they're lit in in post? Do they do they bring you in and have you have you consult on that stuff? It's not it, it, so it's not done. I didn't come into like we Weta did the uh, the animals on yeah. on Rampage, and I didn't go to Weta and talk to them about how they should model their light. Instead, what happened is I lit the shots on set, and we had reference. We had a reference head for George, you know, and oh, cool material, and and I lit the shots how I want for how I wanted them to look downstream once the characters actually in them. Right. So on the, sh- so on the shoot, you match that. Oh, okay. So now there's some shots that are entirely CG, but the entirely CG ones are dictated within the context of the photography that we've actually set up already. Right. Yeah. And it's also a, a discussion too, with Colin Strauss, our, our VFX supervisor of saying like, I mean, there are things where I'm like, Hey, we're going to put a, we're going to put a light right up here and it's going to flare the lens. So when the camera turns, I'm going to need you to put, make sure that, you know, that stays in the shot. And, and it builds it, it builds that lighting into the set 
right? Oh, that makes sense. So it's still collaborative, but you drive it from the physical photography on set. Yeah, I mean, because like there are some movies like Life of Pi, obviously, mm-hmm. where like so much of the environment, like basically what is lit is the boat and the guy in the boat. And then mm-hmm. there's a tiger that has to be lit and yeah, the whole sure. environment that has to be lit. Mm-hmm. And I always wonder how much of that. Yeah. And I'm sure it depends. I, I don't on, know. From, from the film. So, no. So I don't know what, what. Whether Claudio was brought in in post to do to to oversee any of that that other lighting, but he for sure did interactive lighting on set that of course that preconceived of what that lighting would be. Yeah, you know, and that's kind of like you know, I can see both sides of the coin of saying like, oh well, when something's so CG, how much of it is physical and how much of it is is the VFX, right? How much is the photography? How much is this VFX? But at the end of the day, you're it's the you're conceiving of it. And that that's that's my point is like that con- conception of the shot is something that happens in in prep. Well, it's just something that, that like, I wonder about because I do wonder how, like, for instance, uh, Roger Deakins consulted with Pixar on a bunch of movies, including yeah. Wally yeah. on how to get the optics right. Yeah, for sure. and, and and I feel like, you know, having having a DP who really knows the the the, phys- the optics the physical part yeah. parts of it working on something that's got a lot of CGI like like I just wonder where the overlap is I, I mean I like this this gets into a philosophical discussion of what where the future of imaging lies I mean because at some point we're going to get into computational photography and computational photographic cameras right where we're, where what we're capturing on set is about data not about a, a, a flat image yeah and you know, at some point, does the does the job of a cinematographer shift to one where part of it is done on set and part of it is done in post? That's totally totally conceivable. Yeah. You know, and and it's totally conceivable that you could that there could be a time where the actual on set capture is something totally different. But there's still the, the still the, the the idea of how you conceive of shots and how you build build you design shots that's still going to have to exist. The, the, the form of the job may change over time because of technology and whatnot. But the idea of like, I see an image in, in my head and this is how we design that image. The implementation of that or the execution of that image may change with technology. We don't know, you know, for sure computational photography will, will impact it. So uh, what, I mean, I, I've heard a little bit about computational photography. You clearly know way more. Like I don't, how, know, I don't know anything about it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, well, com- just, the, 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 very I've, simply, I've like, seen like the prototypes yeah, of those I mean, cameras. Very simply, computational photography is just the very, the very idea that you're not necessarily making your image in camera at, at the point of capture, right? Yeah. That there is multiple steps downstream that, that you're yield, basically just capturing the field of everything. You, it may be light field. Shot. Maybe like they're, they're, they're a bunch of different ideas for different types of computational photography and that that field is blowing open i mean it's like you know a lot of it is being driven by consumer cameras like i mean your iphone has computational photography built into it yeah right um but the the simple idea the the basic idea of it is you're going to do processing downstream from the image capture that is going to end up yielding the actual image and it allows for a lot of creative uh, control and what that creative control is, is change, you know, that's going to change in the future. So right now you may say, okay, well, it's about focus. You can change focus downstream. You can change your, your lens downstream. You can change, you know, you can change your lighting downstream. You can make it 3d downstream. You can make, yeah, there's all sorts of things that, that you could do, but tech, you know, computational photography is, is a field moving forward and moving forward fast. 
And so who's, I, I don't know what it's going to bring. And I don't know what it's going to bring when it impacts the film business, the motion picture business. You know, Lytro is working on, a, a, they, they have a, a motion picture camera. We tried to get it for a shot in Rampage, but it's at a very prototype level at this point, you know, and they could, they were rebuilding the sensor and they didn't have the sensor available in time. The sensor is the size of an Apple cinema display. I mean, it's a <laughs> gigantic, but it's about, it's about data capture, right? Yeah. So it's a totally different approach to imaging. And, but when that technology comes full, full form, then it, it could have massive implications. We don't know how, but it's, I think at the, at, the, at the end of the day, the job of a cinematographer is still going to be relevant and important, but what it is may change. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. Yeah. So I think that's a really great place to leave it. Mm-hmm. So if people uh, wanted to see your work online, where can they find you? Uh, my name is so jaronprezant.com. Mm-hmm. I've got a bunch of work there. On uh, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram or any of that? Um, stuff? Twitter and Instagram is Flying Baboons. Mm-hmm. And Facebook... Facebook too. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Thank you so much for coming here. Thanks and, uh, for having me. All right. All right. So that was Jaron Prezant. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming out, Jaron. Thanks for being on the show. It was so much fun. And uh, if you didn't listen to his war story on Johnny Durango, you really must. It's fantastic. <sighs> I loved. I love that war story. It's such a great war story. There, there's a lot of truth. I think everyone's had maybe not that experience but something like it or a close call like that. When we talked about doing war stories, I was imagining more stories like that one. It's exactly it. And there aren't that many, surprisingly, (laughs) there aren't that many uh, uh, that are like great hazing stories. Yeah. So uh, who is our war? Now now live up to that. Who's our war story today, Ilya? Uh, Our war story today, though, is also fantastic. Our war story is from Robert McLaughlin. So Robert McLaughlin, he, you've seen his stuff. You, you, you've, if you've seen Game of Thrones, if you've seen Ray Donovan, never heard of it. If you've seen The Affair, nope. you've seen Westworld, you've seen, you've seen Human Human Target. Actually, he goes all the way back to MacGyver. I mean, he's sweet. Yes, uh, Robert McLaughlin's done amazing, amazing work, and he tells, uh, he tells a fantastic story uh, from some of the early days of his his career. All right, well here we go, Robert McLaughlin's war story. And now, war stories. I was doing a documentary about a choir that was on tour in Holland, and they would go there every other year, and and these kids, a a boys' choir, and um, they would perform in all these medieval cathedrals all over Holland, and then on the non-performance days, um, we'd film them going around. It's just just a a really nice little one-hour TV special for Canadian television. And um, one day we were in the Mauritius Museum in The Hague, and the kids were being given a tour. The, the museum was closed that day, and the docent gave them the tour, and we filmed the kids, you know, getting the tour and being lectured about the Vermeers there and so on and so forth. And um, after they were done, I went around to actually photograph the paintings. It was kind of heaven to have this whole, the, one of the great museums of the world and the Vermeers to yourself. While you filmed it, I had one helper helping me, you know, put some lights up, and we were, we were photographing them. And I set my camera up, and I was taking a shot of the painting, The Girl with the Pearl Earring, and it was crooked. And without thinking, I just reached over with my knuckle, and I gave the bottom of the frame a little tap, which is, I don't recommend that you do. And holy cow, you've never heard, I've never heard louder or more alarms in my life. People coming up, guards coming running up, 
Apparently the police had been, you know, there were police converging on the, on the museum. Um, and the, the British director and producer of the show was just ash-stricken. I think he was, a, he was positive that we were all going to go to jail, but at the very worst, his cameraman was going to go to jail, and he wouldn't be able to finish. He was a very high-strung guy anyway. And um, anyway, the, the, the director of the museum came up, and, and we were, like, standing there during the headlights, like, I'm sorry. And um, anyway, they, they shut the uh, alarm off, and um, he very wryly thanked me afterwards for straightening the painting because he said that it, he it had been bothering him for a while that it was crooked but but this is what it would take to get it straight again and yeah so that was me and the me and the girl with the pearl earring and now short ends all right so that was robert mclaughlin's war story uh thank you so much and you can look forward to his episode hopefully a whole lot sooner than the last episode because i'm not having another child anytime soon and uh we also did hire a new editor mike unfortunately for us uh, had to go do other things so thank you for uh, your service mike wilbanks you're a champion thank you mike but uh i'm also very excited about Benjamin Katz, who's now come on board and cutting, and uh, he's going to get some of our backlog taken care of, and we're going to have some more episodes roll out real soon. Yeah, yeah. He is awesome. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you for adding the confusion of two Bens in the workflow. <laughs> so, so uh, Ben, it's that time of the show again when we talk about our short ends. Yeah, so my pet obsession uh, actually relates to this uh, podcast that I did, um, which I co-wrote with my frequent collaborator, Bob DeRosa. Bob and I do uh, 20 Seconds to Live Together. And when we started uh, kind of breaking it on, you know, literally cork boards and index cards with, you know, push pins holding them in and laying it all out, he said, what would you think about doing this in fade in instead of final draft? Now, I've, I've had, uh, you know, I've been a final draft guy literally since college. I think it might have been brand new at the time. Um, and I had been upgrading it, you know, whenever a new upgrade came out, you know, like a, like a green grocer, I would, I would pay for the friggin' upgrade, which was usually like 70 or 80 bucks, you know, every few years. And I feel like it would generally not give me any awesome new functionality, but I wanted to stay current. And sometimes you have to upgrade just to be on the current operating system of, uh, you know, your computer and stuff. But final draft as anyone who's used it knows is, uh, a fugly, it's a fugly program with a lot of, um, uh, side of fugly. It has <laughs> seriously, but it's got like a lot of like uh, legacy code in it and it's clunky and it's glitchy and it's ugly. And so I downloaded a trial version of fade in fade in costs like 80 bucks, which is the cost of one upgrade for final draft. Um, and it's 80 bucks forever. You're going to pay that once and all the upgrades supposedly are free and it is a much, I know, I know this is a stupid thing to bring up in terms of screenwriting, but if you're sitting there writing something all day long, if it looks ugly, it just, every little, anyone who's written anything knows that there's no, there's no excuse too small to quit writing, to go fuss about something else. And final draft gives you miles of that. And I had heard about fade in on another podcast script notes, which is hosted by John August and Craig Mazin, and they actually had, um, Craig Mazin's been using Fade In for years. They brought the the former CEO of Final Draft onto their show once and grilled him 
about wow. about <laughs> the balls that they had to charge people as much money as they charged and to like not not really upgrade the software or make it any better or make it any better looking or make it any more functional but to charge these whopping fees and to buy final draft i think is still like 250 bucks so uh my my short end is a, a strong unpaid uh endorsement for fade in which I have officially moved from uh, Final Draft for, and anything you need Final Draft to do, Fade In does it. Or if you know, like for instance, you're bringing it into budgeting uh, or scheduling software, and they have to have it in Final Draft format to do it, it exports into FDX, which is the Final Draft format. So, wow. uh, so if you're thinking about doing some screenwriting, I highly recommend checking out Fade In as a professional level solution that is cost effective and uh much better to look at and i didn't even really get into the can you import though if you were halfway through in final draft your 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 magna opus can you then import that into fade in and i believe you can i I haven't tried um but also i'll say this that um within the layout um which is very elegant and easy to look at there are like some some very simple tabs that let you go through and look at all your characters and look at all your locations and look at your whole script in an outline form. And when we're making this uh, podcast, which is 10 episodes, um, and uh, it's not the most complicated thing, but at its heart, it's kind of a mystery. You can like look at the flow of scenes even, and you can look at it in index card mode. And there's all these things you can you can use. That are tools. Honestly, most of what we did was just straight up screenwriting, and for that, it it looks good, it works fast, it import. It, it, I'm pretty sure it imports FDX. Haven't tried that. Uh, oh wait, no, I did try that. Ha! When I first opened it, I opened up an old script of mine in F, in Final Draft to see if it would open it, and open it no problems. Hey, all so, right. So uh, and they're, they're and really download, pulling uh, out all the stops to get people to switch. They're really making it easy. Well, I mean, I just think Final Draft is a is it's a tired 1990s legacy piece of software that uh, that really isn't doing anyone any favors anymore. So if I like writing and feeling very retro and want to have this sort of like 90s vibe all yeah. the way through, stick with Final Draft. That's yeah, yeah. The, play play some Smash Mouth in the background. <laughs> hey and, man, you're an all star. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and and crack open Final Draft on your new bus Mac from like 1994. Maybe drink a Zima. Drink yeah. it. You can still get that. Anyway. Can you really? Yeah, oh I saw it, saw it at Ralph's. <laughs> All right, so we're d- digressing. My uh, short end, my obsession this week, is actually something that uh, people have seen, but maybe didn't know what they were seeing, and it's called Univisium. Univisium is, uh, was actually originally called Univision, and it's a format that was popularized, at least on in modern times, by Vittorio Storaro. You've heard of him, right? He's a three-time Academy yeah. Award yeah, yeah, he's, yeah, he's been around. He's been, yeah, he, he does good work. Yeah. Apocalypse Now. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's, yeah. <laughs> so why did they choose to name this the same thing as the Latino Cable Network? Well, uh, that's the thing. I, I think that uh, when this came around 20-something years ago, when Vittorio came up with this format, maybe the Latino Cable Network was not uh, as popular, or oh, maybe so it wasn't. This, so this precedes Univision possibly or uh you know i believe that vittorio is based in italy and maybe there yeah. isn't univision univision there so yeah. so anyway uh, at some point it became univision to avoid confusion and there are there is a bunch of univision cool- with an m at the end univision yes okay and yes. okay so what what is this thing now Let's okay say this, the idea okay this is a two to one aspect ratio it's not two three nine it's not two three five it's uh-huh. not one eight five 
it's a format that is uh, twice as wide as it is tall. And it actually offers some really nice uh, features to filmmakers who would like to have a widescreen format that looks pretty darn good on a 16 by 9 sort of standard HDTV and looks great in a theater. It still has the widescreen effect. In fact, actually back in the 50s, there was something called a Super Scope or a Super... There was, a, there was a couple of different formats that were also two to one, but um, didn't really catch on and didn't didn't stick around. But, uh, but the Univision format that... Uh, Vittorio has been the the driving force behind and the, the creator of this of this format. It's just essentially a, a play on three per 35. I'm not trying to get too technical here, but a lot of different filmmakers have been adopting this, including big studio feature films like Jurassic World. The last Jurassic World movie was shot mm-hmm. in, in two to one. And then also huge streaming shows, uh, a lot of stuff for uh, Netflix like House of Cards, uh, Ozark, plus also... Um, uh, CBS's first streaming show, the uh, reboot of uh, Star Trek, the Star Trek Discovery. That yeah, that, yeah, that of course. Thing, that that's being shot two to one. So you've got, um, but it's being shot two to one. I mean, like, so does Univision just refer to that aspect ratio? And it doesn't matter if it's film or digital or whatever it is. Well, uh, in the film side, there was a few uh, extra sorts of things, but I I would say the thing that the Univision format now is most um is most known for is this two to one aspect ratio and this two to one aspect ratio seems to be catching on and uh i'm sure oh yeah fargo fargo was shot in two to one uh-huh. you, you will um you'll see more and more people using this going forward netflix has already said that they they really like the format so it's um it's something new and it's also something old and it looks great it looks great on a 16 by 9 tv it looks great in the theater so uh definitely plan on noticing your aspect ratios maybe a little bit more that the black bars in your widescreen don't don't look so big anymore on your tv set well here's a question um and i'm saying this as a former projectionist and i was a projectionist with 35 millimeter if you're in a movie theater that's showing that is it just showing um like a 185 aspect ratio slightly cropped and they have to just kind of custom set the um the curtains or something or is that a lens change for modern projectors i don't know if modern projectors have to do lens changes like i used to have to do you know yeah now with the modern digital projections it's a masking change only and um but yeah two to one plays nicely in both theaters there's no there's no lens changes at all i mean i assume if you're projecting film it's the same crap that you always had to do correct yeah interesting okay so uh, yeah. now I've revealed myself for being the dark ages creature that I really am. Uh, well, you know, um, I'm just glad people are still going to the movie theaters. So I'm so glad. People- I'm, I'm glad that some people get to go to movie theaters. Some people, <laughs> some people are just, you know, at home changing a baby's diaper a lot. You know, uh, this this is a, a problem of your own of your own making. So, oh, uh, so tell me about it. <laughs> you you are responsible for for every diaper that you are changing right now. No, I don't mind changing the diapers. I just you know I just want to see Hereditary. Anyway, uh, so I think that that about wraps us up. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure that that can be arranged. I'm pretty sure that that you know uh, your your ch- your child will will sleep straight through that. <laughs> I don't know that they're doing mommy and me screenings of that. Anyway, uh, but I think that wraps us up. Uh, Ilya, where can people find you online? Uh, they can find me over at hotrodcameras.com. And also Cam Noir, correct? That's right, Cam Noir. That's the official home of the podcast. Yeah, so check that out. Uh, I uh, can be found uh, most readily as uh, Neptune Salad, at Neptune Salad on Twitter. I'm also on Facebook, where you can find me at uh, benrockonline.com. 
Um, this episode was edited by Ben Katz, our new our new best friend, Ben Katz. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Um, and a hundred percent of the music that you're hearing on this was created by Kay's Alatracci. I hope that by now somebody has emailed Kay's and just asked him literally anything. You can go to musicbykays.com and just tell him you heard him on the podcast and you like his work. That's really, if somebody would do that, it would it would make my, my year. Because I keep checking in with them to see if like anything has happened as a result of letting us use all this music. Yeah. And uh, of course, Alana Cody, thank you for helping to produce these shows. Yes. Awesome. Uh, they would not be uh, getting cranked out at the speed that they've been getting cranked out at. Again, uh, this one notwithstanding because of, uh, you know, baby related issues. But uh, thank you so much for all your hard work and lining up all these amazing guests we've been getting, too. And uh, I think that's it. I think we thanked everyone. I think we have. I'm just super rusty at doing this because it's been a few months. Anyway, (laughs) thank you so much. And we will see you shortly with Robert McLaughlin. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.